Hello, dear friends, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, as always. And today, we are continuing with our Education Transformed series, but we're doing something a little differently. We're speaking with Tom van der Ark and the wonderful team at Getting Smart. And in fact, this will be a co-hosted conversation, more than an interview, a conversation between Tom and I about how do we transform education? What is generative AI? How is it impacting schools and workforces? How do we humanize education? It is a fantastic conversation that I very much hope you enjoy. And so without further ado, here's a conversation between Tom van der Ark, CEO of Getting Smart, first executive director of education for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, previous superintendent, and a prolific writer and speaker, as we discuss some of the ideas we think matter most for the future of learning. Tom, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, Luca, it's great to be with you. Mate, I really think since the last time we spoke, a few small things have happened <laughs> in terms of disruptions to the global world, to, you know, certainly to the ways of being, not just the ways of learning and working. Um, and, you know, this is a, a real, a real moment in time for us to think about transformation yeah. as one of the, the kind of big themes that's emerged post maybe even during pandemic and certainly now with the other you know generative ai chat gpt disruptions so i'd love you just to but look yeah yeah look, look it's it, it it i think it is a it's such an interesting time in in human history um we we've just lived through a global pandemic it's really the first time in terms of disease and communication mm. and culture and economy and climate that it's obvious that we shared a small hot planet mm. right that we, we we've suddenly just in like the last 36 months understood how connected we yeah. are right we've we've added hyper connected to vuca yes in the last six months and and uh whether it's a a disease vector or a communication vector or a, an economic vector not right now the the, the infection is inflation um and a climate vector we i guess it i i have this overwhelming sense of mutuality that we're experiencing things as a species mm. for the first time and it it feels and you could add chat gpt right in the way that exploded in in december and suddenly it it's used globally by millions mm. of people um for fun and learning and <laughs> uh and other applications so wow what what an interesting time on so many different fronts that required organizations not not just learning organizations but i think all organizations to sort of rethink mission and and deployment right how, how you yeah. carry out the work uh that you've you've taken on tom i really like um i really like the overview effect you know when an astronaut goes into space and then looks back at earth yeah and they report right. having this acute realization that we are fully interconnected and i think the way you framed all that it's kind of like we've all been having our own micro overview effects that oh wait everything is connected and the systems, the legacy right. systems that we've been utilizing, you know, that we've inherited, frankly, be they economic, be they ecological, be they educational, 
I think really are at this point of needing to be repurposed um, and and shifted. Um, yeah, it, let, yeah. Let me add that um, yeah. the the one of the unfortunate things that uh, signaled by the Russia's invasion in Ukraine is that we're we're living also through a geopolitical recession, mm. and so what Thomas Homer Dixon, um, a, a Canadian. 15 years ago, predicted in the ingenuity gap, he said, our collective responsibility is going down while the complexity of our shared challenges is going up. Mm. Right. And so we're facing these these uh, global crises, but with less collective uh, responsibility. And so I guess in some respects, that is daunting for young people uh, just mm. the, the the new existential threat uh that that many young people feel and feel pretty um personally and 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 tangibly mm. um, is that one of the reasons that that you feel so strongly about social emotional learning about well-being isn't that an important part of your practice and the way okay. you're thinking about. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Because I feel like if we, one of the questions is, you know, what is a school for? You know, um, yeah. or, you know, what, what school could be is another great frame, of course, by a colleague of ours, you know, but this, this idea that, all right, if there's all this disruption happening and, and as you say, kind of a decline in the, the kind of globally, well, even the neoliberal narrative, frankly, then, then what's next? How do, how do we find meaning when we see this collapse of meaning? And clearly it needs to be a return to something, I, in my view, not an invention yeah. towards something necessarily. And that return is, a to, you know, towards deep, fully human ways of learning being. And that's why the elevation of social and emotional dimensions of learning is such a huge part of our practice and my my work as an educator and leader, because I really feel that now, it's always been the moment, Tom. You know, it's like, now's the moment. No, no. The moment was always, but certainly, you know, when we think about how do we try to bake in the right type of capabilities, even just to cope, to to self-regulate in a very complex, ambiguous, and now, as you said, hyper-connected, now added to VUCA world, you know, it's overwhelming. And so what's the school for? Clearly, it can't just be about academic achievement, because if we get to this point where a young person has succeeded under that traditional model they've got great grades they've got a high gpa you know that's because we're focused on as professor gene clinton a colleague of mine will say the tyranny of cognitive obsession it's actually what's the point of being a great thinker tom if you if you aren't socially connected and you haven't you can't manage your emotional tone and you can increase that to being physically well and even the spiritual question and to be connected to something greater than yourself, be that religious tradition yes. or the sense of right. purpose. What is my life unfolding towards? What might be mine to do, Tom? So I think that, that we, perspective. Luca, I, I, I think that's really been our, our great discovery or rediscovery of mm. the last 36 months. Um, our friends Klein and Liang wrote this book, how to navigate life where they, they called it the purpose mindset. Yeah. Um, but we, we really believe that we, I guess we've come to understand the importance of learner agency mm -hmm. and agency come to express, uh, to be, to be expressed as a sense of 
purpose. And that that idea really has to be central to every institution of learning. That it has to be about helping young person discover mm. who they are and what they're good at, what their interests are, and where and how they want to begin to make a contribution in the world. We we summarized that right at the beginning of the pandemic in a book called Difference Making mm. at the Heart of Learning. And where we argue that this idea of difference making or contributing, yeah, contributive learning, uh, yeah. a, a mutual friend would call it, yes, really that sense of purpose of making the world a better place um, is there's a new opportunity to to root those ideas at the as part of the new mission of education. It's absolutely right, and even I think. I think it just comes back to the whole notion that we're all connected and perhaps the journey, Tom, is, you know, you can't, you can't evolve unless you're involved. And I don't want to, you know, cite the hermetic wisdom too early in the conversation, but you know, like, nothing about us without us. This idea of agency seems to be one of the, ma- the enormous themes that is emerging from yeah. all these other disruptions. As you say, what's the point of, you know, even this kind of growth orientation that we have economically of infinite growth in a finite world, um, which, you know, St- St- Joseph Stiglitz has a few views on, as do I. I mean, this this is a change towards this that actually it's not about growth. It's about benefit or contribution. So even Dweck's work is beautiful, but it's based in the individual. And so I guess right. what I'm reflecting on, Tom, is as we redesign our ways of being and learning in our schools, our universities, in our workforces, you know, how do we move to this idea that we individuate as much as possible for one reason only, and that is to contribute back into the collective? And for what purpose? Collective thriving. And that means, you know, Valerie Hannon's work, that means within ourselves, between each other, at the community level, and critically at the planetary level. You know, so how do we, how do we start? You can't, if you don't care about something, you, you don't act. And so how do we begin to, like, how do we remember Remember to care that we're all in this together, I think is such a, I like this idea of the purpose mindset. You know, it's like, it's not just self-actualization, Tom. It's not cool. You and I were actualized, you know, we're in our, no, it's, it's self-transcendence. It's collective actualization. What are we doing this for together? And that I think was what Maslow was writing about before he died, you know, actually, but wasn't, didn't make it into the model, Tom, but it's there really in the thinking, you know. I, I opened you know, with existential dread. And yeah. so I, I, <laughs> Just, I, I want to, I want to, um, I want to yeah. offer the, the positive side of this vision is that when, when a learner comes into a, a state of agency, um, it's, it's really the most empowering experience that a young person can have when they begin to understand who they are. Mm-hmm where they are in the world and what they have to offer it's um it's it's super empowering and the the second part of this that i'm excited about is that difference making is more possible than ever that mm-hmm. young people have access today to tools that allow them to make a difference scientifically legislatively yeah socially uh, climate it, on, on every front, it's more possible for 
an individual young person and especially a, a collective of young people to engage in work that matters to them and to their community and make a tangible benefit. Uh, and I think that's enormously exciting. And that's, that's why we try to lift up stories of young people that, that, um, that are changing the world and show uh, that that's possible. And if we can help more kids live into that sense of possibility uh, and not just the existential dread that they're yes. um, inheriting from us, but that sense we called it schools alive with possibility. Um, mm, that's beautiful. When you find schools like that, that invite young people into difficult questions, not easy answers and, and then help them frame work important to them and their community um, and see the benefits of contribution. I just, I can't mm. think of anything more rewarding than that. No, that's so great. I, I completely agree with you. I feel like schools as centers, centers of human connectedness. And therefore the question isn't what's broken. How do we fix it? It's what's possible? Who cares? And how do we create that together? You know? And I, I mean, young people today, um, gosh, there's a lot on their plates, you know, not least of all kind of the dangerous slide towards nihilism, you know, which is, well, you know, you guys stuffed it up for us, you know, <laughs> generations before. And, and yet when you, when you speak with young people like that, those voices, Tom, are the, they're so critical because, and often in our work, what we'll do is we'll ask, we'll say who, you know, we'll work out who the oldest person in the room is and we'll honor them as the elder in the room. And then of course we work out who the youngest person in the room is. And of course, a lot of our work and methodology is co-design. You wouldn't be surprised to know because we think, you know, how do we put the opportunities in the middle of the room and actually sit around them and build together? I, I really feel it's the only way. Again, nothing about us without us, you know, and young people have so much to contribute. The other piece I think that I reflect on quite often, Tom, is that as someone that is very intellectual and cognitive and just a downright nerd, to be honest with you, and, you know, I see you as well, Tom, but, you know, I feel like reads a lot of books and a lot of ideas. It's just fantastic. What I've really understood is actually there's something about embodiment, you know, or embodied cognition that we're really starting to understand, you know, the extended mind, you know, conception, but also like, how do we, how do we realize that actually deep, deep down, far in, you know, it's about who we are, not about what we know. And, you know, this is why the new credential space is interesting for us both and the work we do. Because for so long it's been like, well, what do you know? Tell me what you know. Show me what you know. You know, but now, of course, we're, you know, as Tony Wagner often says, it's like, well, it's about what you do with what you know. And of course, no one disagrees with that. Of course it is. But actually there's some, there's a piece beyond that, which is, you know, who am I choosing to be as I do things with what I know? So this is kind of the identity piece, the contribution piece, coupled with skill set. So it's mindset, skill set, knowledge set. And I really feel like we, if we can get great education has always gotten to that level of depth, I feel. And of course, it's just been because of the legacy systems and particularly the credentialing systems that we've created, you know, at worst, they take a, a multidimensional human being that's irreducibly unique and turn them into a single number, you know, and perhaps at best or better, 
is seeing this idea that actually what's ours to do, you know, and I know you've done a lot of work with wayfinding in particular, and how do you support young people to design their way forward? You know, it's not that you find your purpose all of a sudden, oh, there it is, it's over there, it's by that tree. It's, you know, we experiment. And I think that's why the, the field of design and our colleagues at the D School, I think are doing such wonderful work in that space. But I guess that's my question to you is about the credentials in particular. Like, what are you seeing that's working in service of the transformation agenda in particular? Um, I want to answer with a sense of confidence and, and then a question. Okay. Um, I'm confident that we are in a period where we're inventing new and better ways to communicate human capability mm. that that will send into the background uh, courses and grades and and test scores the the traditional mm. forms of um, talent transmission for for the last 150 years and I, I do believe that the digital credentials based on demonstrated competence riding in in open and interoperable um learning and employment records will will give us a much more um full a much more complete mm. way to to curate uh, uh the way we um share our, our capabilities with others whether, whether it's a college or a an employer or a, a potential a partner and scholarship organization. Hmm. However, um, I, I guess I'm old enough now that I worry about unintended consequences. And yeah, and I um, as, right as in in real time as we're designing new credentialing systems to better capture and communicate a high school experience. I, I worry that we will recreate a new system of standardized assessments, just smaller chunks in, instead of a three hour end of course exam, we'll, we'll have 30, 15 minute credential exams. And so, um, yeah. I think one of the design questions of our day is, can we create a credentialing system that, that creates a positive spiral of, of deeper learning, not a, a, a negative, um, spiral of 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 dead and regurgitation so mm. i think that's a question that we just have to keep fresh and in front of us as we're inventing uh new systems mm. um yeah i feel like so that. i'm excited about all the credentialing projects that we're involved in but i yeah. i am i'm mindful of how, how to make this generative yes uh Right, rather than um, something that uh, deteriorates into another system that we just have to <laughs> reform and replace 20, 20 years from now. Well, I remember, you know, walking into High Tech High Tom and Larry Rosenstock would always stop and point above his door where he had Campbell's Law just, you know, printed out across five, you know, sheets of paper. You know, the idea that as soon as we have a metric, towards which we aspire, it begins to corrupt the system within which it operates. Right. And it's such a powerful way to think about, okay, well, if this is what success is, 
if we're not careful, we orient everything that way and we actually forget about the actual activity that gets us to the success. We start to try to shortcut problematically so. So I feel like that is one of the the challenges for, I think, everyone working in the new metrics, new credential space. I, I do like the shift from a testing to recognition and and from, you know, in some ways towards evidencing, I think is a far better way to think about our, yeah, the, the way that we try to broaden and I would say humanize, although that triggers some people, Tom, but really humanize these systems so they become more human-centered in their design away from, in some ways, the competition towards a more, well, actually, here's what here's what's mine to do. And, you know, if we think about the ikigai, you know, that beautiful Japanese principle that I often share it through my work because I just think it sums it up, you know, what am I good at? What can I get paid for? The professional side coupled with what do I love? And then ultimately, what does the world need? And it's such a, I just feel like it's system failure, Tom, when we have young people who are placed in these positions where they choose not to study something that brings them life, that makes them feel fully alive, uh, you know, a passion because they think if they study a different subject, the system will reward them more highly because they're good at it. And I feel like that right. line that we've drawn, which is about what are you good at? What can you get paid for? Is the legacy of mass education systems. I'm very pro employment, Tom. Don't get me wrong. Like having, having a job is one is the most powerful way to create meaning in your life and to contribute back into an economy and a marketplace. But it's not sufficient unless that role includes your life, includes other aspects, you know? Um, yes, it's about moving towards more and more doing what you love. But I think stoically, because I've been informed by that group of thinkers, it's also loving what you do, you know, appreciating, appreciating what's in your life and choosing to be the person you aspire to be, you know, as much as that's possible in a world that's overwhelmed with existential dread and anxiety, frankly, as well. We haven't spoken about mental health, but, but you know, the World Health Organization is already talking about, about that being the greatest global burden of disease, being depression, not some of the other physical ailments that we have, but some of these psychological ones. So I, I wonder about uh, credentials as being one of the ways that we can unlock, I think, the way that systems have worked. And, and frankly, that the hidden grammar, which is, what's the school for? Well, we say it's to, for the whole child, but actually, we're still going to give you a number at the end of the day. And, and everyone knows that. And even, you know, hardworking educators know that and they want their young people to succeed. So, of course, you're going to use the metric. So, I, I'm very, and there's some work happening down here with um with a group I'm involved in Learning Creates Australia that are doing some really interesting work in that space. How do you create a new recognition system for our country down here? What might that look like? How do learner profiles, passports, portfolios, and eventually wallets, you know, play a role as part of the new learning economies, you know, space and skills gaps, all that yeah. equity, all that space. It's it's exciting, but I, I agree with you. I think there's some we have to not just reinflate the same challenges perhaps. Our friends at uh, Big Picture, uh, mm. in this case, Big Picture Australia, have created yeah. a, a, an international passport that, that we think is a, an interesting model. And uh, the call before this one, Luca, was with uh, our friends at Da Vinci Schools in Los Angeles, and right. they build a 
a, a spiral of ikigai. They begin inviting oh, fabulous. ninth graders to ask themselves that question of, of who am I and what am I good at and what do I care about and uh, what um, how could I turn that into a, a sustainable business model? And so I, I love the way they're thinking about mm. not only educational experiences, but incorporating um, work-based learning. Uh, so engaging with the community so that there's community-based learning experiences that are also part of this Ikigai uh, spiral. Mm. And they'll, they'll capture those work-based learning experiences in a portfolio. And so I, I think combining traditional uses of credentials with evidence of uh, experiences and including portfolios is going to be in a, in a, this extended transcript and in, in, into a learner record that incorporates mm. multiple forms of evidence that I think more fully allow young people to express uh, who they are and where and how they have made a difference and, mm. um, and then to express their, their aspirations for, for future contribution and in, in new and better ways. Yeah. Tom, so to me, that, that sounds like fabulous work. I must go and, and, and see that in, in Los Angeles, I, I feel like the, ch the challenge is we we have to build marketplaces, right? Where these these become new communication mechanisms that are recognized yeah. by multiple parties, and yeah, um, so that's that's the the challenge to make these simple, understandable, interoperable, uh, verifiable, meaningful, trustworthy. Yeah, um, so I th I think that's one of the top design challenges of this decade i i agree I, I feel like well i i'm the work of the learning economy foundation in particular i'm really interested in there that idea of how do you create open standards interoperable systems where things actually can speak to each other you need we need to think ecosystemically about this otherwise we end up with a thousand flowers which are beautiful blooming but of course there's no coherence anymore um easy to say very difficult to do and i think long slow engagement co-design work is, is the way forward there tom i feel like the the other piece on the credentials is if you've got a thousand learner wallets or learner portfolios going into a university how on earth are you know this is one of the interesting questions how, how does admissions come <laughs> with that and I, and the answer frankly is eventually increasingly you know looking at automation and we haven't spoken to yes. that, that that much in our conversation but, you know, generative AI, you know, November 30th, 2022 is a date that my, my deep AI friends, you know, have marked in their calendars because there's before that moment and after it, not because new tech happened, but because the, you know, the paywall was removed in some ways. And so ChatGPT, you know, based on 3.5 open AI, educators are paying attention as are, you know, big tech companies in, across the in board a, in, in, a, in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. In a new way. Pay, so paying, attention in, uh, um, paying attention for a variety of reasons, right? <laughs> yeah. AI yeah. has been pervasive for, for five years now in every, every sector, every, every facet of life has become computational. So that, yeah. so that's one, the, the, the first reaction that I want to stress that every field of endeavor, social, um, 
impact projects to every form of enterprise is now computational. And so mm -hmm. the, the first implication is that we, the core human development goals now must include the ability to name and frame a, a, a project or a problem mm. to work with a, a diverse team, including smart tools to produce value for a community. Mm. So I think that's the first implication of life with AI is that school has, has to be about problem framing first and foremost. We, we, we've just never historically invited kids into framing problems. We give them small bite-sized problems with the right yes. answer. So yes. invite them into framing problems, invite them to work in diverse teams, including smart tools to produce value for a community. So you think of that as the entrepreneurial mindset. So I think that's the first implication. The, the second implication is that as was so evidenced um, like 70 days ago, 80 days ago, um, these tools now threaten uh, traditional pedagogy and oh yeah, and assessment um, in ways that most people didn't imagine a, a few months ago. Yeah, right. It it's sort of uh, for English teachers a lot of your your lesson plans, your book reports uh, sort of went out the window. Mm. Um, Look, I I I saw a survey last week that about a third of college students are already using chat GPT for their assignments. Mm. So this went zero to high penetration in in a matter of weeks. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that before back to that hyper connected world that we that we live in now. Mm. Um, and so I think you and I agree that banning tools like that's not the right answer. But um, can, can we acknowledge that um, it, em, embracing it and learning to use it um, is is an interesting new challenge? Mm. And I think, Tom, the, again, I think it really comes back to mindset. You know, if we see this as a, as a danger to our ways of doing, being, teaching, assessing, um, it is. But, you know, like if you, but if you see it as a possibility, to your ways of being, teaching, learning, doing, it is. And so there's this idea that actually how how we frame this as an opportunity rather than a, a problem to dismiss or a disruptor that we don't want to deal with. Um, I mean, I think, you know, and it's happening there in the US as well, it's, as it is here in Australia, you know, big jurisdictions have just banned, banned it outright. Uh, and I think right. I would say that those are temporary while they try to work out yeah. actually how do we do, you know, I've long said, Tom, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, that what we call resourcefulness and enterprise in the real world, we call cheating in schools. And, you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre, you know, so, and, and the old, remember the old days when you'd say, oh, like great pedagogy is asking non-Googleable questions. There were, there were non-search yeah. engine questions. Now the question is, well, actually good pedagogy increasingly is, you know, asking questions that go beyond basic computation. To ones that are have right. ethics, have the social, the emotional aspects all involved, and so it's a very exciting and terrifying moment simultaneously. I think for for schools and workplaces, and you know, Google, 
you know, for the search engines I, because computation is coming. It's here. I, I do think there's a, a strong parallel with, with the use of calculators in schools. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very much in favor of teaching mathematics as if computers existed. I think about half of what is taught in the United States in mathematics is not useful. Mm. It's, it's the rote memorization of hand calculation routines mm. that no one ever uses. Mm. And it's become a, a barrier to, it's the reason most kids hate math and, um, and, and don't do well. Uh, because what we teach is so irrelevant to, to real life. And I'm saying that as a engineer and a, a former finance guy. And, you know, yeah. I haven't factored a polynomial in, in 40 years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with a, a new mental model that I have developed on how we should teach ma mathematics, particularly math modeling in the age of computers. Yeah. I would admit that I'm still, because we're only like eight weeks into this still developing a mental model of how we ought to use uh, generative tools like like chat GPT, because I, I firmly believe in the importance of writing and mm. learning how to write as a as a core form of, of human expression of understanding who you wow. are and what you yeah. think and know about the world. Yes. And so that mental model is being challenged by this new uh, tool. And I, I think that's true for most educators around the world. Um, and I'm, I've, I've come to an early uneasy mm. truth uh, with, with some of the guidelines that you described. Um, I'd, I'd like students to become comfortable using these generative tools. And simultaneously, I, I very much want them to be able to uh, to express themselves in in writing um proficiently mm. without uh without using uh, external tools and um anyway I, i'm just acknowledging that i'm i'm early in 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 having a new mental model and understanding how public systems will deploy that that sort of a mental model that embraces a, a new set of tools and I think we can agree that the, the, these capabilities are going to keep coming faster mm. and faster. And that it just means we we're going to have to be more agile than we've ever been at reconceptualizing what a learning journey looks like and the ways in which tools are in, incorporated into that. Mm. Tom, ab absolutely. And, you know, here's to neurogenesis. Do you know what I mean? Like the mental models changing. Like there's a lot going on in a lot of brains around the world right now, including my own and yours. Um, I just want to reflect on something you've said, you know, really like why, why write? Why write an essay? Why put down your thoughts in a coherent, compelling way? Because that is a modality that helps us learn how to think and how to think for ourselves. You know, so that's the first piece in this, you know, all these assessments, yes, they are about the products. But why do the products, you know, actually the process now, I mean, that's the big opportunity here. This is the product. I can press a button and there's my product, Tom. So all of a sudden our gaze that was always on product as a proxy for process 
now somehow needs to shift towards, well, process. And again, that means formative assessment. It means evidencing as opposed to just taking a single point in time, high stakes assessment, closed book. You know, I think that's just such a, I think that's a benefit that we should really try to unpack. I mean, the other piece I often think about is cognitive load theory when we discuss, because, you know, I disagree with people that say, oh, you don't need any knowledge, Tom. Knowledge is ubiquitous. You just need skill. You need skill to find the knowledge. And I, well, I say, well, yes, that's true. But, you know, the knowledge of uh, reading comprehension, for example, <laughs> is, is a key. Not, and, and the threshold argument is one I subscribe to, which is if, you're, if your cognition is too overloaded because you haven't reached automaticity in some of the basic calculations or in the basic language structures or analysis, you can't do discernment well. You can't do critical thinking well. And, you know, this is why oracy, I've always been, you know, I'm, I'm an applied linguist is one of my hats and, you know, learning how to speak. I'm a drama teacher too. Learning how to speak, right? Oracy precedes literacy. And so are we actually asking the right questions and doing Socratic seminar and engaging in these participatory pedagogies more? I mean, with ChatGPT here, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be painful, but it's also very exciting that we can we can actually shift and say, well, now if we do this right and redesign it right, we can elevate what I would consider the most human aspects of this experience of life and our experiences of learning and frankly of contribution and workforce, you know? And so doing the kind of routine always, the trend has been really clear, Tom, you know, the routine manual and cognitive has has been left to now AI. And so it's the non-routine, it's the emergent, it's the truly creative. You know, I, I feel like ChatGPT gives us the opportunity to become more creative and be more creative hustlers to use, you know, Sam Seidel's beautiful frame of his book, you know, like this idea of, yeah, it's how do you take this idea, use the tools available as a young person and then create something remarkable. And I mean, there are there's just example after example in every community of young people taking this so far beyond what we thought uh, it might've been used for. Let's, let's also acknowledge that we, we've been talking about some of the big design challenges of this decade. So mm. uh, the, the design challenge here is to invent a new form of ethics, mm. right? A new way to be together collectively with these new tools and what, we need a new set of ethics around human expression, writing and art and music. We need new business yeah. models yes. uh, around these that encourage rather than discouraging human expression. And we need a new way to acknowledge contributions, both man and machine, yeah. uh, to two forms of, of human expression. The, the other aspect of ethics is that I'm afraid AI is accelerating a winner-take-all or winner-take-most economy. Yeah, and and so I'm um, really disturbed about the level of inequality and in the way many of the factors we talked about at the opening, um, mm. pandemic, climate change, mm. as well as AI, are ratcheting inequity. And so, in addition to a new ethic for this age, we need feels like a, a new economy. Uh, for this age, one that is, as you said beautifully, is reflective of a, of a more of a, a collective uh, than the individual. Mm. But we have work to do. Yeah, mate, we got some, just a little, 
But I do, I do, I'm an optimist about this. I, I do feel like these tools, if deployed properly, I, I completely concur with the view on ethics. You know, who owns what? And, and we are seeing, I think, a, a f- such, such a chasm now between the truly creative class and then the consumerist class. And that's, that's a danger when you have eight people owning the same amount of wealth that's, than, you know, than the 3.5 other billion, you know, poorer people of the planet. Right. I mean, that's, that's a design flaw at the heart, I think, of our, our society that ought to be rectified in some way. And I'm not sure exactly how that happens. But, you know, people like Mariana Mazzucato and Professor Kate Raworth and others, these are female professors of economics. They've got some really good things to say about it. And so I would just point to their work and say, all right, donut economics, social foundation, ecological ceiling. How do we do that? How do the metrics change at a city level, at a state level, district, you know, nation, national and international? And I don't know, when we're having a conversation about the next STGs, Tom, I think, you know, we'll be thinking about, I think, transformative regeneration will probably be the frame I think we might need by then, which is not sustainability. No, no, we need to regenerate. And that can that's not just an ecological framing. That's also a human framing. That's a way of thinking about equity. We need regenerative practices here. Yeah. Um, let's add that to the big design uh, challenges <laughs> of, our, of our day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and I, I guess the wonderful opportunity is the, the chance to invite young people uh, in secondary schools and in post-secondary institutions into, into that work. Um, yeah. We, we think that's a beautiful way to frame up uh, a secondary and post-secondary education um, mm. around those shared global goals. Yeah. There's a real conversation about power, I think, Tom, that's taking place and needs to take place. And, you know, this is like, are we going to, are people going to give power? Do educators give power to young people? Do communities give power? Are those that hold it willing to share it? I mean, that's a really interesting. I think it's the only way we do transformation is we repurpose, we repower, and then we repractice. And that's just to quote the big change work out of the UK. I really think that's the way that we transform our world, our systems, our community, and maybe even Tom ourselves. Who knows? Um, Tom, it's been such a wonderful delight to speak with you after, you know, a couple of years. Um, well, actually just a year since we last spoke at South by Southwest, but I really appreciate the work that you and the team do at Getting Smart. And I just think your, your gentle yet beautifully critical um, way that you think about the future of learning. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. And um, it's been great to be a part of this conversation as well and support the work that you're all up to there. Great to be with you, Luca. Um, thanks for your beautiful vision of, uh, of what's possible in learning and can we consider this uh, a conversation to be continued? That's definitely. Now, you know, you're, you're ending your day over there. I'm starting mine. I'm going to be mulling on all these things for the rest of the day. But yeah, definitely some, some more deep work to come. And, um, you know, long-term, long-term work with the long-term people, Tom. To quote Naval, that's, that's the way to go. So, mate, it's a real pleasure. Until next time. Thank you. Until next time.